Hello, welcome everyone to After Hours Politics, a place where a couple of guys sit that or gals, I'd never discriminate, sit down together and just have a nice old little casual chat from politics to more politics. We just try to keep it casually as we can here, though. Uh, I'm your host, Julio. And uh, right now I have my two esteemed guests here for our first, technically not first recording, but first put-up episode, uh, CJ and PJ. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Hello. Hi, everyone. As Julia said, I'm CJ. It's nice to meet you all, even though there are only three of us in a conversation. Uh, hi, my name is PJ. I guess maybe... So we don't get the names confused. You could call me Peter during this. Uh, uh, yeah, it's nice to meet everyone, even though, again, not many people <laughs> I'll actually be talking to. Okay, yeah, okie dokie. So uh, just to put down a little bit of context, we three gents here are all Long Islanders, all New Yorkers through and through. And... We all go to Stony Brook University, and interestingly enough, just to start off on our first topic, we had a little debate between the college Republicans and the college Democrats yesterday, and it was uh, it was a quite an interesting event. It was civil, fairly civil. Nothing really got out of hand, uh, which is you know a little bit thankful. A little bit thankful that at least in this day and age. Uh, we didn't have people yelling at each other. Well, what, what do you guys think? About the debate? Yeah. I thought it was very interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a, an enjoyable experience. I think both sides uh, were able to get like you know discuss things civilly, as you said. And it is interesting because out of the three of us in this chat, I'm the only conservative here uh uh, peter and cj are more on the left wing uh i would say that cj is definitely more of uh more of a democrat peter i don't know sometimes i feel like you're more towards the center i yeah i consider myself to be like center or center left so on like you know i that yeah that well, Julio, I think that uh, PJ, well, Peter and I, I think that we're actually more like politically. I think that, but just the way that it we manifest, you know, our political beliefs differs between uh, us two. Because I do consider myself to be more like center left, you know, social democratic. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that Peter would agree with. Well, I mean, what would you guys classify me? Um, definitely a Republican, conservative Republican. Uh, maybe. Uh, center right, you self said that you identify more as a populist, and um, I think that that's something that uh, you know, looking at you and knowing you, I think that's something that I would agree with. Um, and you also took, I remember I sent you that that Pew research test, um, and it, it said that you were um, a populist Republican. Uh, so it looks like um, I guess the research is on your side. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's fair enough. I could agree with that. Uh, and I'm pretty sure, Peter, you probably would agree with the same thing. Yes. All right. Well, uh, 
with the little introductions and a little bit of a uh, chat out of the way, let's discuss some of the big major stories. And if you gents have any political stories in mind that y'all want to discuss, feel free to toss it in. I know during the debate we did touch upon quite a bit of stories, so we might not have as much things original, but the big story that seems to be going on right now are this. Uh, the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, apparently there's been a little bit of a flare-up with uh, supposed proxies of the Russian government attacking Ukrainian forces. Uh, and then we also have what's currently been going on in Canada. So, uh, I don't know, how exactly do you guys want to address this? Do you guys want to talk about Russia first, or you guys want to talk about what's going on in Canada? Well, you know me, I'm more interested in, like, foreign affairs, so I'd like to talk about, uh, you know, what's going on in um, Eastern Europe. What about you, Peter? I'm, yeah, I'm fine to discuss what's going on in Russia. All right, well, let me see if I can pull up a quick story, just to give us a little bit of background. Let's see, from the Washington Post. Leaders confer in Munich as shelling in eastern Ukraine intensifies. The threat of renewed war in Ukraine escalated Saturday as shelling and military preparations by Russian-backed separatists picked up in the country's contested east. So, we've this has been going on for like a good few... What, this is going on for like a good... Almost like a month now, right? I'd say I mean, so, technically, yeah, a few weeks. I mean, I mean, technically we could go back like... All the way back to the seizure of... Uh, God, what was the name of that one spot? Uh, Crimea? Yeah, but there is also the Donbass, like Luhansk and Donetsk. Well, when was that? Was that around the same time? Also around the same time in 2014. Gotcha. It certainly seems like uh, Putin has been trying to increase his activities over in Eastern Europe. And it seems like diplomacy is... It's trying is trying to be like the first solution, but I don't know. Honestly, I'm honestly not sure how far you could really take diplomacy at this point regarding the current state of Ukraine. You know, I said this at the debate last night, and I consider myself to be a, a, an ardent pacifist. Um, you know, and I think that especially when it comes to Ukraine, you have to be very careful about how you proceed militarily because. Uh, Ukraine, I guess you could say, is at a crossroads in Europe. It borders the European Union on one side, and it borders um, uh, uh, Eastern Europe's. Well, I mean, it is in Eastern Europe, but it borders Russia, uh, Belarus, and other Eastern European countries uh, on the other. Um, and Kiev, its capital, is actually relatively close to um, Belarus, which is a very staunch uh, ally of uh, Russia, so if any military action is taken there, uh, it will inevitably affect the rest of the European Union, especially um, countries that immediately surround it, like, you know, Poland, Slovakia, Slovenia. Um, and I think that ultimately the reason why we're trying to pursue a diplomatic option at all costs is because um, we cannot afford a full-scale war in Europe. Uh, the whole idea of European Union um, was to avert that. Even though Europe, Ukraine isn't part of the EU, uh, it has a very pro-EU policy, and you know, Europe does not want to uh, engage in another war because that brings up very bad memories. I mean, uh, we had World War II and World War One, and before that, Europe was just basically just a perpetual um, battlefield. And so, I think that when we approach this diplomacy, is best uh, if the diplomacy doesn't work. 
um, then we should apply harsh financial sanctions if we cannot um, attack them with our military strength, and we can at least deal a blow to the Russian economy. Um, and yeah, that's what I think. And what about you, Peter? Any thoughts? Um, I, I'm less savvy on foreign affairs, though I have the general... Uh, cons- I, in general, I agree with what CJ has said. I'm a believer in, you know, pacifism, and I think diplomacy can be effective. I think that if Russia um, were to invade, it is deterrence is deterrence, and punishing them for doing so is an absolute necessity without necessarily enge- without engaging in conflict because of the fear of escalation. Um, I in one of the classes I'm taking. Uh, U.S. foreign policy. One of the my fellow students discussed this idea, or this thing where the World Bank—I don't remember exactly what it's called—could basically impose a. It's a specific type of sanction that the World Bank. It would basically deny them access to like funding from it. It's like the most severe step that could be taken, but I do think it would be like an effective form of sanctioning because oftentimes the. The, the validity of the strategy of sanctioning is called into question, though I believe this would be an effective way to go about it. Would um, it be the same as, like, freezing their assets, almost? I I think it is somewhere along those lines, though it is, like, the most extreme form of, like, step you could take in, like, an economic war in this in that sense. Um, I I wish I remembered the name of it, but it's yeah. It has something to do with the World Bank, and just in general, I also believe that it's a um, we as you know. While we need to prevent the threat of war and to mitigate the chances of a war, appeasement is not something that we you know a route we can go down. Uh, as CJ said, Europe has often fought a lot of wars, and uh, you know it was the appeasement of Hitler that led to World War Two. We don't want to appease. Putin, because then it could next it will be Poland or Belarus, and then it will be you know another country after that, another country after that. So we need to hold firm in our united stance, um, pr- uh, protecting Ukraine. So, do you think that if you let's say Ukraine was invaded tomorrow, would you be in favor of like a military intervention, or would you would you rather prefer to go to some form of a peace talk, or, I, or just levy sanctions? I think. Sanctions would be a good first strategy because the the obvious fear of the this escalation to a wider conflict, and if it were to ever get to a point of military intervention, I don't think this should be a unilateral thing. I think this would have to be an agreement between EU nations or between um, between NATO that would you know like a, a concurrence and an alliance force or even the United Nations, something that would not just be the United States going at it alone. It would have to be a coalition of international of countries representing the international community, basically saying, this is enough. You cannot go farther than this, Russia. We are, we are protecting the sovereignty of Ukraine. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how involved the UN could really get involved. Uh, I think I might have to repeat involved twice, but like, I don't think they could... I think there's a lot that they could do, honestly, because let's say, like, it goes to the Security Council. Russia is one of the leading. They're one of the f- what the five leading members. And as soon as they, uh, say they are, no, Russia is a P five country, so it can reject any uh, resolution passed by the Security Council if it wants. Exactly. Okay. So, so sorry. Uh, no, go on. 
I guess I guess in that case it'd be more of like a NATO or a European uh, Union situation. It would most certainly be a NATO and Europe more more so on the NATO side because the European Union doesn't really have a it's not a military alliance, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not a military. I guess they would handle more like sanction, like the economic sort of side. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know. I don't know enough about the European Union to speak comfortably on its policy. I know more about NATO. The European Union does have a unified foreign and defense policy, so mm-hmm. they are resolute against you know Russia. But in terms of like, because like the European Union isn't, it's a more of an economic and political alliance, not. A defensive alliance like NATO is so even though they do have a common foreign and defense policy what's going on in Ukraine is really under the auspices of the um, NATO even so you will you will hear about a lot about like the European Union taking a role but it's really NATO and America and its allies that are kind of taking precedence in that situation and I think that if Russia just invaded Ukraine tomorrow I think that the first thing that we'd have to do is that first, you know, if I was President Biden, I'd demand a phone call uh, with Russia, with the president, with President Putin, or uh, demand an audience with the Russian ambassador in Washington, Washington D.C., uh, and demand an explanation uh, for what is going on. Then after that, I would consult with our allies to determine the current situation. Um, I think that what's most important is that do the Ukrainian people want our help? Because we can't just send soldiers there. Um, without the permission of a sovereign government. Um, and recently in the past, uh, you know, Ukraine has been explicit. If they, if something happens to them, they want, you know, the opportunity to defend them. They, that's what they want first and foremost, to be able to defend their homeland um, with NATO troops and other, you know, other allied forces kind of being there as like, you know, supplementary or backup. The last thing the Ukrainian government wants is for America and NATO to fight its own war. Um, so if Russia were to invade, the United States and its allies would have to consider the strategic um, necessities of sending troops there and whether or not the Ukrainian government wants that. Um, and then if the Ukrainian government wants that, then of course we'd have to determine how many troops would be sent there, how what con- other countries would be uh, going along with that. I'm not a military expert, so that's something for someone else to figure out. Um, well, do you think that it would escalate to nuclear weapons if there no. was a military intervention? I don't think so. No, um, I, I you know I think that like we've United States and Russia we've I think we've made clear that even though we do have military um, nuclear arsenals that um, we're not going to uh, use them, especially in Ukraine. Um, if someone bombed Kiev, you're basically wiping out a significant portion of uh, the Ukrainian uh, population. And at the end of the day, Russia wants Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, not necessarily its government, to be on their side. So if Ukraine, if bombs are lobbed at uh, Donetsk or Luhansk and we inadvertently kill like thousands of innocent civilians, not only are we going to perpetuate the war, but we're going to call, result in a horrific humanitarian crisis that will add a burden onto both sides of the conflict. And despite our differing motives, neither Russia nor NATO wants that. I mean, I would definitely agree that nuclear weapons if anything would be, I'd probably say nuclear weapons would be a last resort only because assuming that the United States and NATO would get involved in uh, an invasion of Ukraine, that would essentially make the war NATO and Ukraine versus Russia. 
And I think Russia would know that that's a conflict that they cannot win. So it's an interesting question. Would Russia resort to nukes if, no, they, they, if they felt they were on the ropes? They wouldn't. Nuclear bombs might might be a last resort, but in this case, I don't even think it is a resort that um, anyone in either side of the, the conflict, the situation is even considering uh, because of how just how damaging it is. And because if Russia uses nuclear bombs, they might inadvertently damage themselves more than they are damaging the United States or NATO. And what we do, no one, no one wants to create um, an all-out nuclear war because we all know that that's just going to end in disaster for everyone. Fair point. Fair point. I just wonder what would be the result, though, if the United States were to enter. Would Russia just immediately back off, or would this be like a long-standing fight in Eastern Europe? I think it would be a long-standing fight because Russia has um, interest in this region. And Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union not too long ago. And I mean, it's always kind of—it's always kind of been part of the Russian sphere of influence. <laughs> it is a Slav. Going- they, they are Slavs. They're, I mean, Russians, Russians, and Ukrainians—they're both part of a Slavic. They're Slavic ethnic ethnic groups. So, Russia just thinks that Ukraine is something that's in its own backyard. I mean, uh, I think the old Russian name for Ukraine used to literally just mean Little Russia. That, that, that's kind of the way that they've always viewed Ukraine. It's kind of just uh, almost like a little brother well, to the rest, just, like of, a, the rest um, of the Ukraine used to be called the Ukraine, and the Ukraine really literally meant like the borderlands. So like from the Russian perspective, Ukraine is basically just the borderlands of the Russian cultural sphere. But like, yeah, no, I mean, of course, like, of course, you know, Russia recognizes that Ukraine is a you know a sovereign state but do they what, really though yes it does they have diplomatic relations with each other but what i have diplomatic are, relations but like i no, but like what areas of ukraine are legitimately ukrainian and which are russian is up for just under you know a little bit disputed because eastern ukraine russia says like oh those those people are they're part of russia you know or like they're allied with russia and southern ukraine like um crimea uh, Russia's argued that you know those parts aren't really part of Ukraine. They're part of uh, they're part of us. They're part of Russia. So there is debate. Like Ukraine, Russia recognizes that Ukraine is a sovereign state, but what territories constitute that sovereign state is a little different between uh, the Ukrainian and Russian governments. Well, I I don't know if you heard like. Uh... I don't know how far back this was, but I remember when uh, I was in a class on, I think it was called Saints and Fools in Literature, and our teacher, who was like, was like really big in the Russian history, he apparently, he's been like keeping up on this, and he almost gives like these many news flashes every beginning of class. Uh, but he talked about how Putin, in a speech, apparently said that there's some form of a genocide going on in the Donbass region. Yes, he he did claim that. He did claim that, but without is, providing any evidence. Yeah, is there really any evidence that that's happening? Not according to like most media sources as far as I understand. It's it's been suggested that that would be a fabricated excuse to provoke like as a, a justification for an invasion. But do you do you think that he would just stop at the Donbass region, or do you think he really, or do you think he wants all of Ukraine? 
because CJ, you were talking about how you know Russia recognizes Ukraine as a sovereign nation. Well, at the same time, they the question of what particular states in Ukraine are Russian or Ukrainian is a is a completely <laughs> different question. It's kind of like the whole Sudetenland uh, argument in Czechoslovakia all over again. Whether or not Russia wants to co- conquer all of Ukraine, I think it's a little different because if you look at if you look in just like the media, some people are saying like, oh, you know, Putin's focusing his efforts on eastern Ukraine. And then some others might be like, oh, Putin is trying to launch an attack on Kiev, which is like in the middle of Ukraine. But um, either way, I think that Putin wants Ukraine, wants to force Ukraine's hand some way, somehow. In my opinion, I think that his ultimate goal is for Ukraine to give up any attempts to try and um, reconquer or recapture uh, its eastern territories in Crimea. Um, I think that a favorable diplomatic solution for Putin would be for um, Ukraine to recognize those regions or Russian majority regions as being part um, part of Russia as opposed to being part of um, Ukraine. Um, So I don't think that Russia wants to, you know, destroy Ukraine, but they do want to put it in a position where it becomes increasingly difficult to um, counteract the demands of the Kremlin, which, according to the Finland, um, the Finnish government, is very similar to the concept of Finlandization. Uh, do, you, do you know what that is? I actually haven't, so please oh. do enlighten me. It's um so during this historical context time, um after the end of World War Two, Finland, which had break declared independence from uh, Russia like before in the middle of like World War One, um it was a you know a free capitalist country that was right on the border with the Soviet Union, which was like a giant hegemonic power. So Finland decided to do this sort of like balancing act where. They refused to join any Western alliances, they refused martial aid, um, they refused to join NATO, um, and they exp- they established really strong political ties um, with uh, the Soviet Union and stuff, while still retaining, um, you know, their capitalist system of government and dem- democracy and parliamentary system of government and whatnot. Um, so, like, they... They basically remained neutral for the duration of uh, the World War while trying to maintain capitalism at the same time, you know, trying to curry favor with the the Soviet government. That also resulted in a lot of self-censorship because, like, you had, like, um, you know, a free, nominally free country with, like, free elections and a multi-party system, but all the parties kind of, like, sort of implicitly supported... The Soviet Union, because if they didn't, they uh, Moscow would not be very happy. So almost like a like a Switzerland, almost just yes, this, like a very a bad Switzerland, if you want to think of it that way. Because Switzerland has genuine neutrality; it has full authority over its sovereign, uh, you know, its affairs. It's not being influenced by anyone to do anything. Unless and you talk about Nazi gold. Yeah, but like in Finland, their 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 um their sovereign their neutrality was basically forced upon them uh, by the Soviet Union. So like even though they didn't have to join Comic Con or um the Common Turn or other Soviet organizations or wait, did you say Comic Con at first? Yes, C O M E C O N. Um, not Comic, not not Comic Con. Common Turn. 
Com no. Edcom? Yeah, the um, Council yeah. for Mutual Economic Assistance. It was oh. like a. It was I, I like, thought you were going. I thought you were going to like refer to NATO or something like that. Oh no! Well, like the seal Com Edcon, um, it was like a. I guess like their equivalent, sort of, of like a wars, like a. Um, like, like the Marshall, Marshall Plan. Yeah, but like for communist countries. So like Finland didn't have to join all these they they did not join these communist organizations like Poland and East Germany did. But at the same time they couldn't join NATO or accept Marshall aid because that would anger the Soviets. So they were like they were forced to accept this really like weird policy of neutrality that tried to like, you know, gain favor with the Soviets. Um, and so, like, that's something that, like, people have been talking about for Ukraine. It's like, you know, Ukraine would retain be a sovereign country, but it would basically be forced to be neutral. It wouldn't be able to join the European Union or join NATO, and even though it would be neutral, it would basically be serving the interests of the Soviet Union, because that's precisely what happened uh, in Finland, because even though they were neutral, they their government was basically forced to kind of, you know align themselves with Soviet foreign policy. And that's something that a lot of Finnish people don't like. That's something that Ukrainians wouldn't like either. Well, certainly, I, I would have thought that, if anything, Putin would try to go after Finland as well, but... No, they can't. Finland is way too integrated into the European Union, and they're very, they're incredibly Western-oriented now with the fall, like the, the, um, with the fall of communism. So, like, Putin launching an attack on Finland would be, like, uh, the U.S. trying to, I don't know, invade the United Kingdom. Like, it's but is just, it like, an actual, is it an actual member of the EU, though? Or it is. is it just kind of, oh, it is. Okay. It's a full okay. member of the EU. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, they have the, they have the euro as their currency. Um, yeah, they're, they're very integrated. Plus, they have a lot in common culturally with, um, you know, Sweden and Norway. So, like, they're, you know, the Nordic countries are all very integrated with each other. So, like, Russia probably, I mean, Finland has more, stronger economic ties with, with Western Europe than it does with, um, with Russia. So, it wouldn't really serve Russia's interest to uh, take action against you, um, Finland, because if they did, it would result in a serious uh, PR blunder. And Russia probably, it would be difficult for them to cover their you know, cover the tracks, whereas in Ukraine, it's just, you know, Ukraine is a um, Eastern European country that has a lot of cultural and political history with Russia, so it's easier for them to take action there. I think it would be a lot more, I think it's a lot more useful of Ukraine, I guess, in terms of public relations, because I don't really think, I don't really think Putin's really concerned with trying to mask his appearance to the Western world, because frankly, it's kind of obvious what he's trying to do in the Western perspective. Well, he but has repeatedly denied uh, accusations that he's planning an invasion, even though we know he kind of is. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So I think that's more for, if anything, just the people in Russia itself. Like, that sort of that realm of public relations. Yeah. Because I don't... I, I, I think that he... Claiming, claiming genocide in the Donbass... Uh, and also deny uh, denying a bit uh, denying a plans for an invasion. I think is trying to sell to the Russian people that 
oh, it's the it's the Westerners or it's the Ukrainians that are the reason that we're going to battle. Mm. Uh, it's like it's like a he's trying to curry favor within the Russian populace for some sort of conflict with Ukraine. I, I don't really think it's trying to cover his ass in front of the EU or or, <laughs> or NATO or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting. You can go ahead, Peter. I was just saying it was, uh, it was very interesting. Uh, yeah, it is. I I was just going to say that it's it's very I, we've sort of brought up like the you know the germany world war ii analogy but i i think it's very reminiscent of like you know the sort of tactics like the germans would use like use to justify the invasion of poland they they literally created a situation where they faked polish troops firing upon german troops which were really just german troops in polish uniforms and then used as a justification to invade this sounds like something that's going that could be used as a pretext for an invasion yeah, honestly. I wonder if they actually will do that, though, the Russians, if they actually will try and stage, like, a sort of false flag attack and then just claim that as justification to barrel through Ukraine. I suppose we may never know until it actually happens. Yeah, I remember, if it happens, like, see, if it happens. Like, see, like, seeing a lot of art, I've seen a lot of articles already, like, uh, t- like with headlines, like, U.S. Intel reports uh, Russian government may use uh, false flag attacks as justification for Ukraine invasion. So, I, I don't, I don't know. This has certainly been a interesting development over the past few years, from the seizure of Crimea now to now to this. Mm-hmm. Has there really been any news going on uh, regarding Chinese expansion either? I periodically get news alerts about uh, them, like their air force flying over Taiwan and just causing the Taiwanese government to scramble jets just to, you know, protect themselves, but nothing beyond that. I think that China's only territorial ambitions are for Taiwan, but even that one is being cautious. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I feel like China's focusing more on economic expansion than land expansion. Well, I mean... They have been, like, clashing with India on their border, though. Yeah, but, I mean, it's not like... It doesn't have, like, grand... I mean, that's just, like, a border dispute. There are just border disputes between, like, every country. Like, China has, like, a set... You know, China and India both have, like, an idea of where they want the border to be. Um, But, like, I think it's a little bit different from what Russia is doing. Because Russia is, like... This is not really... I mean, I guess you could say it's, like, a border dispute. But I think that... When you really look at it, it's a lot more than that. Like Russia really wants to reestablish, you know, it wants to, it wants to reclaim this, you know, idea of like, you know, sort of like a Russian, and I wouldn't say like a Russian empire, but um, they, I think that they have like a lot of, you know, irredentist claims, like, um, like they, they're really going to this thinking that there are people in Eastern Europe who want to be part of Russia because they're ethnically Russian. Um, that's like. Uh, Canada invading Vermont because they have a fr- significant French minority there. Like, that's, you know, that's like Russia. It's like, oh, you know, in Eastern Ukraine, they have, like, a lot of Russian, ethnic Russians, so, like, we, you know, we're, we're morally obligated to go in there and, you know, reclaim that territory for, for um, Russia. But Yeah, but couldn't you argue the same thing with, like, China and Taiwan? Yeah, because but the Ta- thing is, Taiwan... though, is that nothing's really happening. 
I mean, like, Are China China is just, like, flying that? military jets over Taiwan, but they haven't taken any, like, concrete military action in regards well, to Taiwan. Well, I mean, that's only really because they don't share a border, but they've been interfering with, like, the South China Sea for, like, years at this point. Yeah, but I feel like it hasn't, the, the situation in the South China Sea really hasn't changed. It's always been contentious. Um, like, China... You know, see, that's the thing that, like, I noticed, like, last night when they talked about the, um, oh, what would America do if Taiwan was invaded? And the first thing that came to my mind was, that would not happen. China is, I mean, as much as we like to make China out to be this sort of, like, geopolitical pariah, China is intelligent enough to know that launching a full-scale invasion of Taiwan would be horrendous for itself, uh, because it would incur the the harsh response of basically the entire... The, the West and the, all the developed countries in the world, which it relies upon for trade. And uh, without them, China would not be the large economy and geopolitical player it is today. So but why China, do but why do they try to openly antagonize those conflicts in the first place? I don't think that China wants. I think that China wants to show the West as sort of like you know propaganda or whatever that it has the military capability to go into Taiwan, but out of the goodness of its heart, if their government has one, uh, they have decided not to. Um, and I think it's really, it's it's not intended to, they don't, I don't think they really, they're not planning on invading Taiwan, but it's a signal of power to Washington and to all of the other Western countries that says that we, China, mainland China, are forced to be reckoned with just bear that in mind whenever you do stuff with Taiwan, because they want China, like Russia, wants the West to kind of, they want to force our hand, of course. They want to ensure a political agreement that's favorable to them. And, you know, I think that be, we're not, like, you know, China doing military exercises in the South China Sea, um, showing off its near military... Hawaii. Yeah, like, basically in the Pacific, that, like, you know, the... Um, that part of the world, China, you know, is trying to flex its military muscles. Um, I think that maybe partially in response to, you know, American military exercises, because it wants to show that it's being, right now, it's like, you know, it's being a peaceful partner, but, you know, they are a force to be reckoned with, and, you know, their demands should and should be considered seriously uh, by those who are more inclined to support Taiwan. But let okay, let's let, let's put out a scenario here. Let's say that tomorrow Russia invades Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. And at the and at the same time, China seen an opening and they invade Taiwan or airstrike Taiwan. <laughs> Julio, I feel like I know it's a hypothetical question, but China and it's I you mean think, you think China would, would not launch would an airstrike on Taiwan. That's, like, the last thing it would do right now. And why would Russia invade Ukraine? Okay, well, I mean, Russia might... The chances of Russia, like, invading Ukraine would be more likely. But the example with China, I feel like that's... That just wouldn't you don't th You don't think they're territorial expansionist? China is... This is a new term, reunificationist, I guess. China does not want to, with the exception of, like, Taiwan, China doesn't really want to expand into other territories. They just want to keep their borders the way they are 
Are now. you sure they yes. have border conflicts with all of their neighbors? Only and, one I'm aware and, of is and, with like in the, the um South um Asia with like India and you know that general area of the world. And but you don't think that them wanting to expand to the South China Sea or them contesting the border with India is you think that's not them being expansionist? I think that you know they're trying to. They're at the end of the day, China is certainly more economically expansionist. They don't have these sort of like irredentist. I mean, with the exception of of Taiwan, they don't really have these sort of like irredentist uh, land claims. Um, I think that well, I mean, with the with the South China Sea, that's an interesting example because like. They're kind of claiming water, and there really is, there is no land there. Um, but I think that well, China's using been, well, they've been creating artificial islands yeah, there. They have, they have, which is. But I mean, I think the difference between Russia and China, I guess, in this sense, is that China's trying to expand into land that doesn't exist. Like they're trying to make new land, whereas Russia is trying to co- take over populations that have already been settled down, like you know that have been there for for quite a while. You know. I mean, it, like with like with like Taiwan, um, I think that you know that's like the one major exception to like what I'm saying about China. So, but I, and we did get a little bit off track. But in, in that scenario, like I know you disagree with it, but let's say for the sake of the argument, China at the same time that Russia invades Ukraine, China airstrikes Taiwan, or I don't know, there's a a, a border conflict uh, between them and Indian troops. Like what? What? What would like? What would your? What would your preferred response be from the United States? Uh well, you know, I think that first diplomatically, we we'd have to demand a call from uh, President Xi Jinping to explain um, his actions, and then we'd have to consider what sort of military aid or what sort of aid should be sent to um, Taiwan, because at the end of the day, we have to remember that the United States doesn't recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state. We recognize China. I mean, Beijing, um, as a sovereign nation. So we can't really... It's difficult for us to go out there and explicitly support um, Taiwan because then at the same time, we'd be contravening our own treaty with China. Is it, but... Wait, wait, how is that contravening a treaty, because though? We, because we're obligated to recognize it as a sovereign nation according to a United Nations General Assembly Resolution in you can 1970. Rec- you can, listen, listen, you can recognize China as a nation, but you can also... <laughs> intervene on the behalf of Taiwan and militarily aid Taiwan Perhaps from indirectly, Chinese Perhaps indirectly, the United States could give aid to Chinese Taipei, as Taiwan is known internationally. But it's, uh, we can't... See, the thing is, though, is it would be easier for us to support Taiwan if it was rec- if we recognized it as a country, but we don't. And it, uh, well, so wait, we, what, but wait, what do you mean it would be easier? I don't think no. I don't think anyone really worried declare, about paper. So we can't officially declare support. The government, the Biden administration, cannot go out on a podium and say we support the Republic of China or we support the Taiwanese government because that would be contravening our own international obligations. Instead, the president might be like, um, I don't know. I feel like he would probably, if anything. If any, anyone was expressing support for Taiwan, it would be a lower-ranking U.S. official, not from President Biden. Um, and so we would probably be willing to provide aid to Taiwan, but I don't. we would not send troops, I don't think. 
Wait, CJ, I'm I'm just very confused in the way you're wording the way you're wording it. You're saying it's not it it wouldn't be easy to support the no, Taiwanese we can't government. Officially, we can't officially support Taiwan because it's not a but country how... according to our government. But what's wrong with calling it Taiwan? What do you, what do you mean? What's call, wrong with calling it Taiwan? Are, are you talking you're... about Chinese Taipei? That phrase okay, that I used. You're... No, you're saying that we can't officially say that we're helping Taiwan because it would go beyond international treaties. Correct. And the international treaties, I presume you're saying, are the ones that say that we recognize China as a country. Correct. How does saying that Taiwan exists and we're going to support it, how does that intervene because with then us it implies- also recognizing China? It implies that we recognize that Taiwan is an independent country separate from the one China policy that we're obligated to support officially. I mean, if we're going to... Oh, so the policy that we signed on to recognizes Taiwan as part of China. When we establish China China relations with the People's Republic of China, one of the stipulations is that we cannot recognize Taiwan as an independent state and that we have to recognize Taiwan as part of the People's Republic of China. So if China, mainland China, declares war, or, well, no, they wouldn't declare war because they consider it part of China already. If they launched sort of a military action against Taiwan, Biden would not be able to go out there on a stage or podium and say, you know what, we um, are supporting Taiwan in their fight against the People's Republic of China because doing so... What's going to stop him from saying that if he wanted to? Well, he did not necessarily not anything really, but it would if he did go out and say that he would it would make diplomacy or any chance of diplomacy with China based virtually impossible because now China is because now we're basically we're violating the own or the treaty that our government willingly signed on to. So what would happen in my this is not. China, the United States kill, can still um, support Taiwan, but it would have to be a little bit more, I wouldn't necessarily say discreet, it's just that, like, the government wouldn't have, be able to, like, highlight it. Like, they could, I don't know, uh, send equipment um, through, or, like, humanitarian aid, or, you know, economically, like, help fund their effort, but, like, Congress can't go out and say that, oh, uh, we want authorization to send troops to Taiwan to fight um, the People's Republic of China, because geopolitically, that will put us in a very odd situation. Would anyone really care, though, other than the Chinese? Uh, well, it's allies. (laughs) Russia. Okay, how many many allies does it have? Well, Russia, Vietnam, Cuba... North Korea. Even, Vietnam, even Vietnam, they don't have good relations. With. Yeah, but see, this is sets the bad precedence, though. I mean, because if the United States just go out, goes out and says we don't care about our international treaties that we signed, and we're just going to support Taiwan because whatever, because we support democracy, that it doesn't. It sets a bad precedent because if we do that, then that means that anyone can just anyone can just ignore international treaties, like you know. Um, I mean, people, it's, it's like it, people violate internet, countries violate international law um, all the time, but they really shouldn't. And the reason why international law exists and why treaties exist is because they, their aim is to sort of, you know, get everyone onto some sort of like, you know, common ground. 
in the United well, States. CJ, you, but CJ, I, I'm sorry, but like I feel like you just shot yourself in the foot How? by saying that vi violations of international laws happen all the time. And the reason that they happen all the time, it just seems like no one cares. I think that we should care. And I think that, you know, especially with China, their, you know, unfortunate human rights uh, abuses. And that's with, with Taiwan. I'm not saying that the United States can't and shouldn't support Taiwan. What I am saying is that we have to be very careful about how we do it. And we have to we can't just go out there and explicitly say we support Taiwan because, unfortunately, we assigned on to international agreements that uh, officially state that the U if it gov our government's official policy is that we do not recognize Taiwan as an independent state. So we would have to modify any statements that we give um, to, you know, I guess we 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 could surprise. I don't really, I don't honestly don't know how how this would you know work out because again. It, Julio, I think that, you know, oh, no, China is going to invade Taiwan is a talking point that's used by a lot of conservatives and, you know, Republicans as sort of like a hypothetical what if that isn't really that is just that it's hypothetical um, and isn't I don't think it's going to happen, at least not right now, given the current situation there, despite its tensions. Um, but just to summarize, the United States can support Taiwan, but it cannot explicitly state that it supports Taiwan in an official capacity, if that makes any sense. I know it sounds convoluted, but because Taiwan's very. political system, it, because Taiwan is, its very existence is convoluted, I guess convoluted problems require convoluted answers. What about you, Peter? Hi, sir. What do you think? Um... I... I think it like it is a convoluted problem. I I do agree with the idea of respecting international law, though I do have the perspective of it's I guess this is more of a question. So like does China have any like as far as the international community is concerned, China Taiwan is just property of China. There's just so basically meaning it can do whatever it wants with it, right? Yes. More or less. Technically yes. speaking, according to the United Nations and the US officially. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I guess what it comes down to then is sort of like what you were saying and well, sort of like what Julia was saying. Like the idea of like I agree that it it, it sets a good example of respecting uh, of the United States respecting international treaties and respecting international law as a standard, though it's, I, I guess it's a, it's a difference between reality and practice. I agree that I don't think Russia, uh, China would invade Taiwan. It would be way too disruptive in the international community. I just don't think that's the, an avenue it would go down. And I don't think even in a hypothetical situation that the U.S. would come to its, come to its aid primarily because China is the other primary nuclear power in the world alongside Russia and any escalation, any potential war between the United States and China has runs the risk of nuclear escalation and nobody wants that, which sort of, I believe, makes any sort of conflict between the three countries unlikely, but that's a sort of a separate point. But it's also, there's that interesting aspect of the idealism versus reality because in many ways taiwan despite the international community's refusal to recognize it 
as such. It continues to act and exist much like an independent country. Like China continues to threaten it because it cannot control Taiwan. So it raises the issue of, I, I guess it doesn't really change how the U.S. policy would address it, but the reality is, is that, like, I guess that would sort of raise the issue of, like, is that treaty really valid if it's not actually in practice? Like, it's, it would be one thing if China, like, if, Taiwan, if China exercised a large degree of control over Taiwan, but it doesn't. It continues to function as an independent country. So, therefore, the idea of China, like, it's, it feels honestly like we're all just playing along with a big joke that China, we all just pretend that China controls Taiwan just to make China happy, even though that's not the actual reality of the situation. Very, very moderate of you. I'll, I'll, I'll clap my hands to that. <laughs> I, I would certainly agree with that take. Uh, I guess that's the sort of argument that I would try to put forward. As in, like, to recognize, yeah, the, rec the basic way you said, to recognize Taiwan as a part of China is flawed because we're only trying to make the Chinese happy. And in reality, the Chinese do not exercise... I'd argue really any control over uh, over Taiwan, at least at the current state. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I guess in my hypothetical scenario, I don't think the United States would really care in regards of naming Taiwan Taiwan if they wanted to declare their support, but no, that's just me. Well, if Taiwan decided to establish itself as an independent, well, it already kind of... I mean, de facto it, it, it is. Pretty much, it but if no, its is. official name is called the Republic of China because they claim legal continuity with, uh, you know, the pre-communist government in China. But if they decide to go out and say, okay, we're the Republic of Taiwan, uh, that would imply independence from China. And if the United States supported States Taiwan, Taiwan. Um, then that would be uh, Beijing would hate us. And then diplomacy between us and Beijing would probably suffer really bad. Uh, so that's why Taiwan is not... I mean, for Taiwan, too, if they declared themselves as the Republic of China, they are no longer claiming continuity with an existing government. Now they're establishing, technically speaking, in the eyes of international law, a new government that is separate from the People's Republic of China. And doing so would imply that they're declaring independence from China. And that would actually help, that would actually help Beijing, which is why Taiwan is not... Um, it's holding off from changing its name or doing anything else to suggest that it's like they're they're kind of like you know they're trying to they're balance they're all kind of performing a sort of balancing act they're trying to you know prevent Beijing from becoming too angry at them. So I I I see that point. Like I I do agree that it it wouldn't be helpful for Taiwan to, you know, to, to change its name because that would create, you know, a necessary problem. But I guess in a certain respect, they don't really need to because, like we've kind of discussed, they, they continue to function largely independent of China, d despite what China likes to claim about its relationship with Taiwan. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately I mean, for us... By all means, CJ, like, Taiwan's an independent nation, whether it's an international treaty or not. It has its own military, it has its own economy, it has its own capital, it has its own populace. 
Oh, its own citizenship as far as I'm concerned. I can't really think of anything that Taiwan doesn't have compared to any other sovereign state. It is state. already recognized as a sovereign state by several countries, unfortunately not the United States. Well then then yeah. I guess well then I guess already it's independent from China. Uh the United the United States would only only really takes like not recognizing it for the sake of having some sort of diplomatic tie with Beijing, which I think you know I think appeasing the China is a mistake. That's my personal opinion. I, I'm not, I'm not really a fan of appeasing. Well, we were talking <laughs> earlier about the how the strategy before World War II didn't work. I think the same could be applied here i don't think an appeasement strategy with china would work in curbing its expansionist whether territorial or economic because i the spot and this is that this is an open secret i despise the Chi the chinese communist party to the very core it is a totalitarian genocidal regime through and through and i view it almost no different from nazi germany I, I I just I just can't see myself supporting any sort of appeasement of it, but I don't I don't know. That's just me. I, I yes I I do not support or can I condone you know or support anything that the Chinese government is currently doing. I think though the relationship between and I understand sort of applying the analogy of the Nazis, though I think there the reality is. The inter the relationship between Nazi Germany pre World War Two and the and the international community and the relationship between China and the international community is very different because as a, Germany was never the economic hegemony that China is. It is to go to war with China would be to rupture the international economy, perhaps irreparably, and that is the primary issue of. It, there's also the other issue that is a nuclear power, which Germany also never was. So, well, it does not, you know, well, I imagine quite a few Western leaders quietly and often openly detest all of the things that China does. The realities of statecraft and the realities of human, you know, support for human rights don't align in this particular instance. I think that we, well, I don't think anyone really agrees with what the Chinese Communist Party is doing, except maybe members of the Chinese Communist Party themselves. But and Justin Trudeau. No, actually, I think <laughs> I think that Canada has very fraught relations with China at the moment. In 2013, he said he admired their basic dictatorship style. His words, not mine. I I. I, I haven't heard that. I'm not disputing what you're saying. I just, I have not heard that. Neither have I. I, I could honestly almost give you to it verbatim, uh, but I'm going to paraphrase. It was at a town hall in 2013. This was before he was prime minister, to be fair. But he said he admired their basic dictatorship style because it allowed them to, and I quote, turn their economy on a dime, which... He then applied the sort of like, uh, oh, if China for some reason decided to want to go green because of their dictatorship, they could turn their economy around like that. Which 
I can kind of see what he's trying to say, but at the same time, I would not put any sort. I would not say that I would admire the basic dictatorship of the Chinese government. I, I, I would certainly wouldn't say the same thing about the Soviet Union or or, or Nazi Germany either. So, his comments. Well, uh, I mean, with uh, that out of the way, but speaking of, uh, I guess, Justin Trudeau, uh, what's been going on in Canada right now, for anyone who's been living under a rock the past two or three weeks, in Canada there has been the Freedom Convoy, which has been a protest against the COVID, as far as I'm concerned, it's over the vaccine mandates, but there are some uh, members that basically want to remove every COVID mandate in the protests. It's been going on for about three weeks, and about a few days ago, Justin Trudeau activated the emergency powers. And now, today, and I figure tomorrow as well, there's been quite a, quite an, ex, an extreme crackdown on a lot of the protesters. Videos of uh, rubber bullets being fired on, on the crowd gassing, breaking windows of cars and trucks, and apparently a woman was also trampled by police horses. And from what I have read so far, she was killed in the incident. Uh, I guess the first thing to start with is uh, what exactly are your guys' opinions of the protests, and then maybe we can go on to sort of the government response. I've debated this at length with uh, Julio before, but I'm interested in Many hearing... Times. Uh, what, um, Peter would like to say. Okay, so... I... I think that the invocation of a sort of act like this perhaps is a bit short-sighted. I understand the, the position of Canada's government in a certain respect because... While I do not, you know, while I support a the individual's right to protest, I, I guess this becomes a question of, like, when does it end? Because the, this was causing, the, the tactics used by these protesters were causing a significant disruption to daily life. It was because of the fact that they could clog the roads and, inter, you know, intersections, including international commerce of, you know, between, like, two countries and thereby disrupt trade and people's ability to go to work, to go to the store, you know, like, it would have been, it eventually has an impact, and there's only a certain amount of time before you, you're com sort of compelled to act to return things to normalcy, especially because while in the eyes of many people, these people are like have taken on like a folk hero sort of aspect. There's also a lot of people who probably did not support the protesters and would never support them and especially don't support them because of the fact that it's disrupting their daily life. The protesters have had their chance to be heard. The Canadian government understands what, you know, has had a chance to like hear these concerns and it, it's not an incident anybody would soon forget. But they... But it, there becomes a time where a government has to act, like, has a responsibility to protect, to, you know, reflect the interests of the majority. And in the instance where the majority would like the protests 
to end would like things to return to normal, you know, a return to the normalcy of like being able to just simply travel around in your home city. I think that the government taking this sort of tactic is not necessarily uncalled for. But is it really necessary to fire rubber rubber bullets into a peaceful crowd? I so I think so. Or bo tear gassing them, or sending in police on mounted horses. That, no, I that think trampled, that, that trampled a lady in the crowd. I think that that absolutely crosses a line, particularly because it has been peaceful. I I agree that that I do you know I do not support that sort of action. Though I do think the Canadian government doing at least some. I do support the idea of them doing at least something to return the city to normal. To you know, to clear out the protests, though the use of force is not something that I, you know, I believe was necessarily justified. I think the idea that, uh, you know, towing the trucks away, uh, using crowd suppression tactics that aren't violent to get the protesters to go home is the is the right idea. But I don't think what that's what I mean. Like, I think the idea is in the right place, but I don't think the execution has been very good. You know, well, I think I mean, that uh, going for, you know, the, the woman who died, um, actually the journalist, uh, the journalist who reported that uh, retracted um, their statement and Ted Cruz actually stated that he deleted the retweet about that because he realized it was in error. Um, and the police department, the Ottawa police so department. She's, so she's, no, so they, she's she alive. Got, she, she got up and walked away. <laughs> um, but the Ottawa so, police department stated that there was no one... Um, who had gotten injured uh, that day. Uh, what they are aware of, though, however, is that... Um, I don't know, remember that vi video um, that you saw um, pre pre prior and during that? Um, the, police, the police officers were actually um, encouraging the protesters to step back. It wasn't like they were kind of caged, caged in. Um, they were given ample opportunity, the protesters, to move out of the way. Um, but some protesters, they actually threw bikes. Wait, why were, why were, why were they sending, like, mounted police in there? In okay, the so that's something that, like, I'm not, I saw that video, I'm like, why are there mounted police in the city? I don't know, that was something that I was confused about. Like, um, that reminds me, that reminds me more of, like, Bloody Sunday during the Civil Rights Movement when they were sending <sighs> mounted troops at the, uh, what was it? What was the name of that bridge? Oh, uh, I know, I, I know the bridge you're talking about, I don't remember the name. Where was that, in Alabama? Yes, I'm pretty sure. It's almost more reminiscent of that, sending in mounted troops with batons and yelling at people to get back. They were, but I mean, I mean when you look at the video, they really, I mean, as aside from, like, trying to move, to get their way through the crowd, they weren't intentionally trying to run anyone over. It's just that, the for the protesters, they were, they were effectively throwing themselves in harm's way. The police were trying to get them to move back, but the protesters were telling themselves to hold the line. And so they basically threw themselves in front of the horses, and now they're complaining that, like, the horses ran them over when it was really them who basically... CJ, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna point this out. There were several instances during the summer of 2020 where Black Lives Matter protests blocked highways, and there were some instances where cars hit them. Would you would you support that okay, as well, Julio? Say, you're talking about a car versus a horse. I think that those okay. things are different. Okay, there's also but... the issue of it. It was a temporary disruption, not weeks on end. Okay, but I think that the, by and large, the police, the police here in Ottawa have been more peaceful 
um, than what we saw in, in 2020. Uh, Firing during... rubber bullets into the crowd? I mean, Julia, when... Using tear gas? Well, I think, you know, something that... What, did you, would you support those, um, those measures in 2020 during the Black Lives Matter protest? On a peaceful crowd? No. But the crowds were peaceful. Exactly. I said I wouldn't support those measures on a peaceful crowd. But no, I'm, I'm saying that when the rubber bullets were shot, they were shot into peaceful crowds during 2020. And I wouldn't have supported it. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess for, for, for Ottawa, uh, I don't think that, you know, using... I mean, as as PJ said earlier, maybe the, uh, the execution... I mean, the whole reason why the Emergency Act was implemented was because the Ottawa Police Department and the provincial police didn't... They didn't really exactly do their jobs. They kind of allowed the protests to spiral, you know, get larger than they should have been. Um... And so it kind of left the federal government with, like, no choice. Like, they want to, you know, get things back to normal, but there really was no, you know, other way. So I think that for Justin Trudeau, he was kind of boxed into a corner. And um, as a result, the Emergency Act was, was um, you know, implemented. But I think that, you know, for the... for the, I don't really know much about the, um, the rubber bullets being shot into, you know, um, into the protesters. Because I haven't, you know, I haven't really seen that. On the news, and you know, I think that I'm also mildly concerned, uh, Julio, about where you might be getting your news because you were unaware that um, the Ottawa protester who was trampled to death actually just got up and walked away, um, and that was updated uh, only a few hours ago. But I think that my concern is that if I hadn't told you, you would have gone on believing that um, an, uh, a protester had genuinely died, and it would have been a while since you. Uh, found out that was that was otherwise, but you know. Okay, I'm gonna say this: Does it really matter that they died, or does it matter that that horses just trampled over people in a protest? No, but those people put themselves in front. Of, they knew that the they knew that the horses were coming. They knew that the police wanted okay, them to get out the, of the way. Okay, but why are the horses trying to cut through the middle of the crowd? Because they want to push them back. Is that what oh, they're wait, supposed how does, to do? How does cutting through the middle of a crowd push people back? Well, to be fair, if you saw, like, so if you looked at the p picture or the video, right in right in front of, or well, right behind the um, the police, uh, the the mounted police officers, was another line of um, of uh, more police. Like, you know, the I don't know what is it, the uh, um, riot police. Yeah, the um, yeah, with like the you know the geared up or whatever. So I guess they, they were kind of actually at the front of the crowd when you really think about it. Um, so so they were in the front of the crowd and decided not to go between them and the riot police line, but go through the middle of the crowd. Uh, yes, and also Julio, I just saw the video you sent me. Um, I have no idea who Adam H is. Well, it shows actual footage of it happening. I don't think it really matters who it comes Julio, from. Julio, the problem... See, this is just someone who's just vlogging stuff. Um, okay, CJ, there's a lot of horrible instances that are taken footage of by random people. Like the Rodney King incident. That was just someone videotaping it, and eventually it got out, and it caused, you know, the LA riots. Are you saying that just because it came from a random person that just so happened to be witnessing it, that somehow now the Rodney King footage is invalid? 
Not necessarily. Or what about in spot, Julio? Or what about? Or what about? Or what about? Ottawa, about Ottawa Police Department, Julio, has denied any reports of rubber bullets being used. Uh, some, I think that they've actually even claimed uh, that the, some of the bullets are actually coming from you know people within the crowd. Honestly, I don't Wait, know how. What? I don't know how that okay. works, but that's that's one of the that's one of the official lines that's um is being used by some people. Okay, CJ. Okay, CJ. The line that I've heard all throughout like the past few years is about people's distrust in law enforcement when it comes to combating crowds. And I completely sympathize with that because there are a lot of times where the police try to cover their asses when shit goes bad. So, you don't think that there's not the slightest chance that they were using rubber bullets, and now that people are talking about, it, they just deny it for the sake of denying it. There is, you know, I think that there there is a possibility. I don't, I you know, I feel like we need to let some time for the dust, um, to settle. In my opinion. Well, what does that what does that mean? I think that we need to give some time because right now we just like you know allow. I feel like there's so there's a little, still a lot of you know misinformation. Like, well, I think the thing with the uh, protesters accusing the uh, riot police directly running into uh, the crowd, uh, even though they were not, they gave them a clear advance warning to move out of the way, and basically the crowd just threw themselves at the horses. Um, threw themselves at the horses. They, no, they deliberately put themselves into position, expecting to be run over, and then blamed it on the police officers for. Expecting to be run over. To make a political statement, Julio. Well, you're well, you're blaming the crowd for being trampled by by. They had horse. every opportunity to move out of the way, but they put There's themselves of... in harm's way and got run over. Okay, by... CJ, I, I'm sorry, but you can put that in any case for police suppression of any sort of crowd. That the crowd should have expected that the police were going to start firing tear gas on, or they were going to start moving armored trucks, or they were going to start moving armored police units in. You can apply that to almost every single protest or riot, with, with, with barely any limits. Ne ne next to the police using live rounds. You could have argued that during the bridge incident on Bloody Sunday in the 60s, the protesters were given ample opportunity to move and get out of the way, but oh no, they technically threw themselves against the mounted police or were just just in the way and wanted to make a political statement. You see, you see where like you see where there's like a problem with this. You know, I personally, I don't, I don't agree with. Uh, police brutality, and you know, I think that's something that a lot of my fellow Democrats uh, would align with. But you know, I don't think that when you look at the what's happening, if if there was indeed um, rubber bullets being used um, against the crowd, then and and the crowd was peaceful, then I would uh, disagree with that. But I have, you know, I I don't know enough about the current um, situation. So really, what I'm both going based off of is what. What I know, what uh, reputable sources have um, have published, um, what can be clearly determined at this time, um, and so the, with the what we can clearly see uh, with the video and what you know, what ha what is already well known, um, is that I do not think 
that the um that the the situation with the you know the the police the cavalry the i don't know the mounted police officers um i don't think that it's i would not consider that um uh, I, I would not consider that uh, police brutality in this instance, no. And tear gas? I do not know enough about, as I said, like, this is, like, I really only looked at the, um, the, uh, the, what is it, the mounted police officers, so I, I and I don't, re- so I don't really know much about, I know that, like, there's, there's, um, n- uh, police activity across Ottawa, um, but I don't know enough about the tear gas or the, uh, the rubber bullets, I think, to make an educated comment. Have you seen the videos of them breaching in a mobile home? No, or sm- I have not. Or smashing, up, or smashing up the windows of trucks? No, I have not. But if it did, would you disagree with it? Um... Or I don't know. I mean, we've already had confirmed reports from reputable sources about Define them. Define reputable peppers. sources, Julio. Are you talking about, like, the New York Post? Or, like, Toronto Star? Or are you talking about the Associated Press or the well, Canadian I Press? Think you, I, I think what you're aligning reputable sources seems Julio, to be on because an it depends on where you get your information. There are very reputable sources that would have differing <laughs> opinions on the same event. Okay, but, here, but here's my so problem. I have, so I, this your... is what I have to ask, Julio. Where are you getting your information from? Al Jazeera. Canada okay, police that's... use pepper space. Use pepper spray, stun grenades to clear protesters. Well, that's a reputable source, I suppose. The Guardian. This is left-leaning. Yeah. Ottawa. Police use pepper spray and stun grenades to clear trucker protest. State Magazine. I don't even know who that is. Police use pepper spray, stun no grenades to clear that, Ottawa. So I might be... Well, you know what? You have The Guardian and Al Jazeera reporting on it. Or, I don't know, Yahoo News. Or Forbes Magazine. Canadian police <coughs> wielding batons and pepper spray clear protesters away from dot dot dot. Doesn't have the full title there. So here's my problem, CJ. As soon as I, as soon as I talk about, like, these sort of actions, you immediately try to go to, like, define a reputable source. Which, for you, it seems to be on an ideological basis. That's just what I, that's that's just the uh, the impression I'm that I get from you. If that's not what if that's not what you mean, go ahead. But that's just what I feel. You know, I think that when you think of uh, an reputable source, I think of you know the New York Times, the Associated Press. I will admit, you know, Al Jazeera and the Guardian are are reputable sources, but I hadn't you know I hadn't read read those articles. Um, so well, I was not know, aware of them. You know, thank you, thank you for making me aware of them. But I don't think that you know, I was not aware that those articles existed, um, and those well, reputable you know sources about, that I that I do read um, from time to time. Um, but you know, I think that if if that if those uh, allegations you know are true, I think that that's um, concerning. I think it's <laughs> something that uh, that um, we should consider. But I. Don't think I really appreciate the um, insinuation that um, my ideological, you know, I think that that I only look uh, at at um, liberal newspapers. Uh, I do, you know. I mean, I, that's I, not what I. That's not what I was implying. Well, you were implying that my 
what I consider to be reputable is determined by ideology. Well, you mentioned the New York Post, no, I which, said, is, well, New- which is which is right leaning. Correct. I mean, I actually do read the New York Post from time to time, but usually it's just on like local things. They do have like okay, a, well, I don't know. Okay, but okay, but you said you wouldn't trust you wouldn't trust the New York Post. That's because would you trust Fox News, Julio? Oh. There has to be at least one thing they're getting right. CNN has to at least get one thing right. They can't be all. Tr- they can't be all just outright lies. Perhaps I would. Say, I would say the same thing for CNN or I don't know MSNBC. Uh, like there are opinion pieces, and then there are news stories that are heavily biased, but at least contain some kernel of truth. That that's just personally what I think. I can uh, I can see why people would not want to 100% trust everything that comes out of Fox News or everything that comes out of CNN because they, they are under a heavy ideological bias. But I I wouldn't outright ignore them just because their titles would be hyperbolic or the, just the stories themselves would be hyperbolic. That that that's just me. But like I listen, I, I I appreciate it. I guess now that you're saying that these reports, if that they uh, that they seem to be true, at least regarding stun grenades and using batons and other forceful means, that it is concerning. At least, yeah, at least we can agree on that. I don't know. Uh, how about you, Peter? Do you you? Uh... Well, what I, do you think? I, to be fair, I, I also like. I've been following the protests very, you know, very not like I've been following them, but I, I haven't, and I have heard reports of the police stepping outside their boundaries, but I, I don't know enough to really like speak confidently on this. I do obviously not. I do not condone police brutality. I think that you know, clearing peace, a group of peaceful protesters with you know, with violent tactics is just a way to escalate a situation. And I know that a properly trained police force should have tactics that are designed to disperse crowds without necessarily using things that could cause, you know, severe injuries. So uh, that's all I really think I should say on this. I don't know much else. And what do you think is going to be the future? From this point onward, regarding the protests, in yeah, like Canada, you mean? Well, I guess maybe in in the scheme of Canada, because we have been hearing news about other convoy protests being planned within the United States. I think there's one that's actually supposed to head for Washington sometime soon. I I've heard that as I well. Guess, yeah, but I I can't cite exactly when. I just heard about it. Um, I think that. Um, I don't. I think at least I think the protest will be cleared in Canada and then I think for now perhaps life will you know like perhaps thing it will die down for a bit though I do think that the tension will be simmering and I think it will um it it there's a chance of another flare up of another of a new set of fresh protests especially if 
especially because the sort of tactics being used by the Canadian government might or will earn some sympathy for the protesters. So, well, certainly been it it got Al Jazeera's and the Guardian's attention. I was honestly surprised. I would have thought they wouldn't have covered the story. To be mm-hmm. fair, but yeah, I I, I don't know. I I'll agree with you that I think tensions. They might simmer for a bit, but the problem is because of this very seemingly heavy-handed response by the Canadian government, I think it's only going to probably incite either more protests or maybe even violent ones. And that's something that I'd be very worried about. I I agree with that. I don't, you know, that it is the, I, I do agree that there's the potential for escalation. Because... Throughout like the whole pat throughout like almost the past month, the protests have been peaceful. There hasn't been, as far as I'm concerned, any any instances of looting or rioting or or just general violence, even against the police. And even when they're being fired upon at this point, uh, which <laughs> I will say that it shows quite a quite a restraint, honestly, from a crowd. Uh, that they're being like you know pepper sprayed and that they're being cracked down upon. There hasn't been from what I from what I've been able to gather so far. There hasn't been any reports of uh, violence from protesters, which I'm glad for. But mm-hmm. it it always has the potential to kind of eventually get out of control. And there have already been arguments that Trudeau has pretty much lost control of Canada. And. Perhaps this goes to maybe back CJ what you said he was kind of forced into a corner to maybe play a heavy-handed response, but honestly, this could backfire on him. It won't it could because Canada is predominantly bad. left-leaning, and they will re-elect him. If not him, then another leader of the Liberal Party. But they don't really—they don't really elect the. They prime elect on a general that. election. They elect individual members of Parliament, and assuming Canada stays the way it has been for I don't know generations. They'll probably elect another leftist, you know, left-leaning majority and uh, another, you know, I mean, they don't have, their general elections aren't scheduled again for another few years. So in all likelihood, if, hypothetically, if Justin Trudeau is forced to resign, it would just be another leader of the Liberal Party who would be in power. So it would be the same person, ideologically speaking. Well, I mean, I'm just more concerned about the fact that if Trudeau is going to keep staying in power, which... I mean, even if he does, I don't think his reputation is really going to be any good after after this. Maybe to some people it might be, but given what we're seeing right now, I don't know what the future is exactly going he to be. He would certainly be have an unfavorable reputation among conservatives and among, you know, the segment of the population that oppose vaccinations. But the vast majority of Canadians support the vaccinations and are tired of the protests, so in all likelihood, while he might suffer reputation-wise among some groups of popul- some people... He's probably going to retain popularity among uh, most Canadians to allow him to stay in office. You think that most Canadians aren't going to care that the police tactics used on the crowd were excessive? We can't. I can't speak on for the um, police uh, tactics, unfortunately. But you know, I think that, like, um, based on, um, I think that as the t- as time goes on, I think that we're gonna really have to see. I know that the American Civil Liberties Association is going to take his government to court uh, because of. Wait, 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 wait! Can they do that? They can. You can sue the government. 
Wait, wait. The, Ameri- the, Canadian, the American Canadian system? Civil Liberties Association. Oh, uh, okay. No, not the not America. Um, yeah, I was very confused about to, that. He has to stand. Uh, so once when they invoke the act, um, they have to give a report to Parliament, and um, Parliament, you know, has to scrutinize it or whatever. And you know, who knows? Maybe during that time, something will come up, and Trudeau may have to, you know, experience another political quandary. Um, but you know, that's. It's going to happen after after this protest is over, so we have to wait and see. I'll give Justin Trudeau one thing. His political career so far has been very resilient. No matter how many times he's been caught in blackface, he's still the leader of the left-leaning party. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Do you, Wait, do you guys know about that? I have heard about that, yes. Yeah. Yes, it was in, um, like, few years ago yeah i heard about that i i don't know that that that's something else yeah like yeah that's disgusting didn't he get up in like uh like in a hindu outfit one time like a few years back as like a pr stunt you know that he did boxing uh, as like a pr thing he did boxing yeah it was like a one time man in- that man in a boxing ring? <laughs> I who the hell was he fighting? Um, I don't know. That's interesting. Oh, go ahead. The closest thing we have is the congressional. Baseball game. Uh, and Exactly well, well, what we got on how did this conversation, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a very good question. I think we were talking about like, like we were talking about uh, Trudeau and how he Trude- boxed once. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, he was yeah he did bo- he did a boxing stunt. Uh, sometimes I feel like I wonder what the alternate timelines of this period would look like. So so many potential like what ifs, and sometimes it almost feels like we're in an alternate timeline, just because of how crazy shit gets. I I have thought about the alternate timelines in this particular day and age a lot as well. <sighs> yeah, it's certainly uh. Certainly, like a very complicated age that we've turned out living in. Indeed, indeed. I don't know. Does anyone, uh, anyone have any other stories? 
that have recently popped up in the news by any chance? I do not, unfortunately. Um, I don't particularly either. And those are like the main two things, especially internationally, that the world has been focused on. Fair enough. Uh, well, I mean, I guess we could talk about what's been going on in New York locally. Uh, have I, I mean, you guys have probably already seen the uh, the new congressional districts for New York, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, how do we come up with these maps? For those for those who are unaware, uh, as we said way back in the beginning, we live on Long Island, and recently the whole state of New York just had a re a complete rehaul of their congressional district map. And the district that I am in is now also part of Westchester County, which, for those who don't know, is on the New York mainland. So me living on Long Island may or may not have now a congressional representative being voted for over in Winchester County. <laughs> and Peter, I think you're the same thing as well, right? Yes, I'm in the same district as you. God, what? What a load of gerrymandering. Both both parties do a lot of gerrymandering, uh, but like this this is starting to get pretty egregious. I think CJ, you uh, you said that the whole pretty much the whole state of Texas is gerrymandered, especially in the urban centers. Of course right? it is. Otherwise, how would the Republicans retain their majority there? <sighs> is there any other? I, I wonder how many other big states are just like. Just full of gerryman, just full of gerrymandering. A lot. There's a, like all of the major swing states have some degree of gerrymandering. Like if if there's a close population, it's almost a necessity for the for the party in power to maintain it. What's our swing? What's the swing states we got anyway? Um. Well, Texas is uh, Texas is on the border of becoming one. You have uh, Michigan. Right? Mich is Michigan one? Uh, I'm not. I'm not really sure, actually. Well, yeah, you, have, you have Pennsylvania for sure, Wisconsin, Arizona, New Mexico. Um, let me take a look here. I actually searched it up. Okay. List of swing uh, swing states. Da, da, da. Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Wisconsin. Well, that's actually a lot more than I thought. Yeah, there's a good amount. Huh. I don't think there's really any date for this article. God damn, that, that is a lot of swing states. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11... 12, 13, 14, 14 swing states. Goddamn. Yeah. God, I, I hate I hate to look at the maps for like the congressional districts in some of these places. I know that Virginia recently just turned red, actually, uh during the last election, if I if I'm remembering correctly. Like for, I remember for a long time they had like a Democratic uh governor. And now, uh, like over the last year, they've uh, they turned red. Supposedly, uh, people claim it's because of the uh, backlash to what's described as critical race theory being taught in schools. But 
I'm not sure how much credit I'd give it to that. Don't got a lot of time left. Uh, we were planning to go up to 10:30 with this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you guys, do you guys want to touch up on critical race theory a bit, or I, I'll be honest. I, I, if if that's what you guys want to discuss, that's okay. But I, I don't know much about like. Oh, oh better yet. I have a better idea. What if we talk about uh, the new Supreme Court pick, if Biden has picked one yet, which I'm not sure if he's picked one yet. Okay. Ha- Wait, has he picked one yet? No, he has not. He's still looking for one? I think so. Are there any suggestions? Is there like a list that he's at least put out? Biden, no. Supreme- I think that they don't announce lists of people they want to appoint. It's like kind of secret. Oh, but there is, like, you know, the speculation of who he's going to pick. Yes. Hmm. Oh, this is a very interesting article that popped up. Why Biden's Supreme Court pick may be a safe choice and a non-factor in the midterms. It's from Fox News. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Let's see. Biden to announce Supreme Court pick next next month. Jesus Christ! That was this story was from three weeks ago, so he's got to be coming his way soon. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll they'll uh you know issue like release you know their public endorsement soon. Oh, CBS News has uh has a story here. Meet the woman who could be Biden's pick for the next Supreme Court justice. Let's see. What do they say? Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Hmm. Jackson 51 was one of Mr. Biden's first pick for the federal judiciary as president and is considered to be the front runner for the Supreme Court. The president selected Jackson to replace Attorney General Merrick Garland on the influential U.S. Court of of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Considered to be the nation's second most powerful court in March 2021, and she was confirmed by the Senate in June. So she has the experience. You know, if she's, if she's the one who gets suggested, I wouldn't mind. I know that there was a lot of, like, uh, I don't know, con- controversy, I guess is the best way to say it. Controversy around, like, uh, Supposedly, during his campaign, Biden had promised to pick an African-American woman, which some people found an issue with. Uh, I remember we went over this during the Democrat and Republican debate. My argument was that I wouldn't mind if the pick was uh, was any minority or really any gender, as long as they meet the qualifications. Uh, as long as we kind of look for qualifications first and not not make race like race or gender the most supreme priority. I, I don't know. Well, what are your thoughts, Pete? So I, I, it's weird. I haven't thought enough about this to develop like a really strong opinion, but there is this sort of element of making the Supreme court representative of the country as a whole. So having a variety, so having both men and women having um, people of different religions, different races. So, in on one respect, I do, and especially because there's never been a you know a woman of color on the Supreme Court before, I think there is the like 
on the one hand, I do think that is a good idea. But there was also the one of the arguments raised uh, at the debate last night was the idea that it's sort of like tokenist that is just doing it because you know because of her her race and her gender. So I I, I think it's a difficult sort of issue to to deal with. I do agree that the Supreme Court is in need of you know should have a qualified individual serving on its rank in amongst its ranks. So I. I I don't really, you know, I I I don't know. I I think the 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 other thing though is there's probably there are a lot of qualified candidates who fit both of those descriptions that the but like who fit who are both qualified and fit the women of you know a woman of color. So I think there there's the like I think there is the potential for you know it like. It's, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, I think a, a highly qualified candidate can also be a woman of color in this instance. So I think the Biden administration might be able to get what it, you know, what Biden claimed while also fulfilling the requirement of, well, not necessarily just trying to come across as fulfill, like being like a tokenist sort of suggestion. It's kind of, it's a difficult thing. Well, I mean, the woman that MSNBC, or no, not MSNBC, CBS is saying is going to be the top pick, she was confirmed by the Senate for the Court of Appeals in in the D.C. So, mm-hmm. I, I would call, I mean, I would call that qualified. Yes, I, I agree with that. Like, it's, the, the there's not, the chances of the Senate picking someone who isn't immediately qualified is you know it is um, like it's just not going to happen of course the i whoever it ends up picking will certainly be qualified and trying to pick someone who reflects a portion of american society that's never really been on the supreme court before who also happens to be extremely qualified i don't necessarily think there's anything i don't think there's anything wrong with that i don't really think i don't really think it's going to affect the political leanings all that much because uh what well, what was the name of the guy who retired Stephen Breyer. Breyer, yeah. Uh, from what I from what I heard, he was a left le- he was like mostly left leaning judge, and him retiring and being replaced with what I'm going to assume is going to be a left leaning judge. I I don't really think it's going to matter all that much in terms of like I don't think it's really going to affect the balance of any sort of the cases that the Supreme Court's going to be coming up against anyway. That is true. Uh, I don't know. Well, CJ, what about you? Yeah, because I know we touched we touched up on the. I remember you touched up on the debate about this topic. I think a little bit, but just for like uh, anyone who's listening tonight, I think it's perfectly you know understandable for you know Biden to want to appoint someone you know more racially to make the the court the Supreme Court a little bit more um, racially uh, diverse. Um, I think that you know I think. Because we haven't, we've never had a black uh, woman uh, serve on the Supreme Court, so I think it's good for you know that community um, of the United States. Um, there are, as you know, as Biden said, there are many capable, qualified um, women uh, of similar demographic background, but who have not been accepted in the past uh, to fulfill such an important position. And so, um, his willingness to do that, you know, I think that's, I think that's good. For uh, for for us, so yeah, yeah, I agree. 
Oh, and I did miss out a little bit on the article. Apparently, there were two more suggestions other than the... Actually, no, there are four suggestions. Uh, the first one was Katanji Brown-Jackson. The second one was California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger. Member of its highest court. Okay, well, I mean, at least it's the Supreme Court. She was nominated 38 years old. She has about seven years of experience. All right. Judge J. Michelle Childs. Formerly nominated to the D.C. Circuit by Mr. Biden earlier this month, has served as a judge on the U.S. District Court in South Carolina since 2010. So about 12 years. And then the final one was Judge Candace Jackson. I'm going to have trouble pronouncing this. Ak- Akiwumi? I don't, I don't know if I just seriously offended someone out there. I'm sorry. I can, I, that last name is a little bit of trouble. But uh, let's see. Also in the first group of Mr. Biden's judicial nominees and was a partner at the Washington, D.C. firm Zuckerman Spader until her nomination to the 7th U.S. Supreme Court of Appeals in 2021. So, 2010. She, oh, she was a staff attorney from 2010 to 2020. Hmm. I don't know. What would you guys consider as like good qualifications for a Supreme Court judge, though? I think that's the interesting question. We're talking about, oh, we should pick like the most qualified person. But I guess with the little time we can have left, we can uh, kind of debate this. What do you guys think really stands for like, you know, a good qualification? Whatever the president think is, is politically necessary at any given point or time, given the fact that the president has authority over appointing uh, vacancies on the Supreme Court. That's the strictly political side of it, by the way. I'm not a supreme, I'm not a legal person, but if you're looking at it from a political standpoint, even though it's supposed to be an apolitical position, appointments to the Supreme Court are inherently political, especially now more than ever. I agree with that, but like, I mean, for like you personally, CJ, would you... Is there anything that you would want from someone to consider them like a qualified candidate? I don't know. I guess this that they're good and they're a good job judge and that they're experienced. They know how to, you know, interpret law. And yeah, that's that's it. I mean, I've never had never had an opportunity to appoint anyone to a court. So guess I wouldn't really but would know. You, but would you pick like, you know, a former uh, like a former judge with a few years experience or would you be able to pick someone like i don't know maybe like a former attorney general or something like that or someone who's only been a judge for like you know two or three years i think that maybe an experienced judge would be appropriate i think as opposed to an attorney general you... general attorney, gen- attorney yeah, generals can... are basically lawyers for the state or like prosecutors yeah so they're not really they're not judges in the strict sense Yeah, I can agree with that. How about you, Peter? Same thing or a little bit different? I'm sorry, I, I missed, like, you, you basically, so, did you basically say, like, someone who was, like, like, who, like, has experience? Was that, like, the argument you made? Well, I, uh, the, I think the, well, I guess I'll let CJ answer that question. 
Uh, I don't want to really speak for him. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I missed what yeah, you just said. someone who's, you know, experienced, you know, has uh, experience in, like, the legal system knows how to interpret law. You know, sounds... Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree with that. Someone who's served on, you know, high courts, who has, uh, who, you know, has studied law extensively, perhaps, you know, um, who perhaps is known for their impartiality. Like, not known for necessarily picking a side, but trying to read the law as they see it. I mean, that's what we all hope for, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not exactly what we get. <laughs> that's true. Hell, I mean... It is kind of sad to see the degradation of the Supreme Court as, like, a as just another sort of partisan battleground. It's not really about, like, you know, the interpretations of the Constitution. It's about... It's about, like, uh, which side, ideologically, are they more likely to pick. It's, uh, it's, it's frankly a little bit sad. Yeah. Uh, I think, honestly, looking at the list that is provided, and this is only four people by CBS, but I think I would have to pick... I'd have to pick Michelle Childs only because she's been like, she's served as a judge in the U.S. District Court since like 2010. So she has like over, she has over 12 years of experience under that. Oh, and, yeah. apparently, and apparently before her appointment to the federal bench, she was a state court trial judge on South Carolina Circuit Court and a commissioner of the State Workers' Compensation Commission. So. Hmm. She's had a lot of certainly high up places. Graduated from University of South Carolina School of Law. Okay. Yeah, honestly, if I if I'd have to pick anyone, it would be Michelle Childs. She does sound qualified. I I I would love I I honestly should do my own research to see what like I would I've not been following this as I as closely as I would like to. I, I do know that this is an important... The Supreme Court pick will be important. And the names I've heard... It does seem... What does seem good to me is it does seem this nomination could be a bipartisan one that has good support across both sides of the aisle. Well, let's hope. I'm not sure if the Republicans are really going to be voting to confirm anyone at this point. It, hell, they might wait until the midterms, which is definitely not something that the Democrats would want. Yes. Well, it, I guess that becomes the question of if the Democrats could then, you know, force a vote before the midterms, because theoretically they do have a majority in the Senate, so. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know that is a questionable majority, but. Yeah, it's it's slim, and the filibuster, you know, kind of, I mean, that's what kind of the filibuster is for, kind of negates very slight advantages like that. So. I don't know. Let, 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 let's see what happens. All right. Oh, but let me read more about the, the first candidate they suggested, because I'm wondering, they're suggesting that Kentanji Brown-Jackson is is considered, like, the front-runner for the Supreme Court. So let me see, like, if there's any, if there seems to be any reason why that would be, because Child sounds pretty experienced. She has a lot of time under her belt as a judge, but let me see here. Considering that in March 2021, she was confirmed by the Senate in June. Okay, so she's been on 
the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C. since March of 2021. So she's been on there for less of uh, less than a year. U.S. District. Uh, she was U.S. District Judge in the District of Columbia and Vice Chair of the U.S. of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. It doesn't say how long ago. Yeah, I don't know. A graduate of Harvard Law School, she clerked for Breyer on the Supreme Court from 1999 to 2000. Okay, I think I, I think I see why she's the front runner. Yeah, probably being a clerk for Breyer is uh. Oh yeah, she has the direct yeah. experience. She has she she has experience under a former what is now a former Supreme Court judge. So if anything, I think that's probably why they're why she's at least considered by CBS to be the front runner. That, yeah, that, that does make sense. I mean, I can see it as like reasonable, but the, the, the only problem is that like, she doesn't, she doesn't have like a lot of experience as a judge, at least from what I can see here. It doesn't say how long she was a, uh, it doesn't say how long that she was a district uh, judge. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I have no, I, I don't know how long she was a district judge. Yeah, it doesn't say anything here. A confirmation hearing to the federal district court Jackson was introduced by then congressional congressman Paul Ryan, a Republican from Wisconsin, who would go on to serve the House Speaker for retirement in 2018. Ryan and Jackson are related by marriage. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's still not telling me how long she was a U.S. district judge for. If you go on a Wikipedia page for her, it usually gives like their terms of office and different things. I know Wikipedia is not the most valid source, but it just it give a general idea. It can yeah, be helpful. It sh I mean, it should have at least some of her history there. Let's just do a quick search because, I mean, we got about five minutes, but I don't know if you guys want to stay on for much longer, if you guys have anything else planned. If you guys want yeah. to stay for like a couple of minutes more, you know, or unless you guys got to go. I got it some um, uh, some work done for uh, Monday. Done a little bit after okay. this. Yeah, I, I I also need to go. All right. Well, okay. Then five minutes we could probably call it a, a good recording note. But on the bright side, CJ, our recording did not cut out this time. Oh, that's good. Yeah, mm -hmm. the first time we did a recording for at some point the bot for some reason disconnected, and so we lost maybe like. <laughs> the final quarter of the conversation. Yeah. Which, which mm -hmm. was a shame. Uh, judge of District of Columbia. She was... Oh, from 2013 to 2021. So, that's like, what? Let's see. 21 minus 13. 8. So, she's... Been in the district court for about eight years. And she's been on the... Well, she's been in her current job for about... Well, she assumed office in June. So it's actually been quite less than a year. But she was confirmed in March. So... Well, she has experience. Not going to say she doesn't. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 
Wait, sir, CJ, were you about to say something? Oh, no, I wasn't. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. if she, she has experience. I'll give her that. But I feel like I'd want to pick Childs more. Just because she has more of a... She has, like, more long-lasting experience. Two-turn Supreme Court is a current membership. Jose graduates of Harvard or Yale and one of the Notre Dame Law School. Hmm. Actually, I wonder where... Where did the first one graduate from? Ah, Harvard Law School. Yeah, That's I, pretty good. Yeah, I, but I, I feel like it might, they might be trying to be very particular about the graduates that they pick. Because Childs is listed third out of the four uh, supposed candidates on the list. And she graduated from University of South Carolina School of Law. And apparently the memberships of the Supreme Court is eight graduates of Harvard or Yale. And one of them from Notre Dame. So they seem to be very particular about who is graduating. <laughs> it's yeah, it's. I guess the the schools certainly have that reputation. Yeah, I don't know. Whoever it is, it, hell, it might not even be any of these four people, and we might be wasting our time here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, whoever it is, I wish them the best of luck. I I I honestly wonder if we're going to hear about them uh as soon as March rolls around because 3 weeks ago uh 3 weeks ago they were publishing a story that said Biden was going to announce it next month so we're getting pretty close. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean whoever gets the job, best of luck to them. I hope they are experienced and qualified enough for the job and uh I hope that they do their job as the uh as the Supreme Court deserves. And with that, with a minute before 1030, uh, is the end of this, of our first podcast. We, uh, I'd like to thank, uh, both CJ and Peter for joining me tonight. Uh, it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a trip trying to schedule this, but Hey, we got there in the end. And yes. gentlemen, would you like to have any closing thoughts? Uh, well, it was nice, uh, nice talking. Yes, I, I enjoyed this. This was a, a nice, it was nice to speak with you on these topics. Okay, everyone. Again, I would like, me and uh, the gentleman here would like to thank you all for showing up and listening to us tonight. And, uh, yeah, we hope to see you, or we hope that you listen to the uh, next episode of the podcast. So, uh, y'all gentlemen, uh, y'all have a good night. All right. You too.